We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome senior healthcare consultant, Alan Frady. He'll explain how routine surgical events could inadvertently get reported as medical misadventures. Does healthcare need fixing? Former AHIMA CEO Rose Dunn thinks so, and she'll talk about a fix. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has important coding news, and Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a man who knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone. And welcome to the 471st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. Yeah, I gotta say, Clark cracks me up every time. Good morning, <laughs> Chuck and Clark, and hello, everyone. <laughs> You know, I'm delighted that we have senior healthcare consultant Alan Frady with us today. I know that you and Alan have been emailing each other for some time now about his topic today. Yes, his topic is about post-operative complications and how to interpret the recent coding clinic advice. Mm, very good. Also on today's Talk 10 Tuesday, Rose Dunn returns with an exclusive two-part series on the need to fix healthcare. We're going to hear part one today. I look forward to hearing Rose's segment. I always learn a great deal from her. And I do, too. Senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson has a talk into the coding report. Yes, and there's some really big news. The 2022 Hospital Inpatient Prospective Payment System Final Rule, the IPPS, has been released for review and will be posted tomorrow. And, of course, that reminds me that you and I will be joining Lori during her three-part IPPS Final Rule webcast series. The IPPS Summit is coming soon. Uh, There's going to be more information, but for now, put us on your calendar now. That's going to be August 17th, 18th, and 19th. Yeah, essentially, you and I will be bookending Lori's three webcasts. Clark? Thank you. I raised my hand because this is new. To celebrate Ipsalooza, ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday are giving away a one-month subscription to the ICD-10 Monitor educational webcast portal. One lucky person is going to get unlimited access to ICD-10 Monitor webcasts for a whole month. We'll announce the winner on Talk 10 Tuesday, August 24th. And people can visit icd10monitor.com to enter to win. Thanks, Clark. Uh, Erica, you have a talkback segment today. What's on your radar screen? Uh, Yeah, I'm going to review the updates to the 2022 ICD-10-CM coding and reporting guidelines. Oh, wow, great. Thanks. Looking forward to your talkback segment. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is presented by MRA, the premier provider of medical coding, auditing, and cancer registry solutions. For 35 years, hospitals and healthcare systems have chosen MRA's 100% U.S. based solutions for their proven quality and expertise. Find your peace of mind by partnering with MRA at MRAHIS.com. Here now is Tim Powell. Thanks, Chuck. And the inpatient perspective payment system final rule and the long term care hospital perspective payment final rules has been published by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for fiscal 2022. The rules were released yesterday at the close of business. The final rule updates Medicare payment policies and rates for operating and capital related costs of acute care hospitals and for certain hospitals and hospital units excluded from IPPS for the fiscal year ended 2022. In releasing the two rules, Two final rules. CMS said that the policies in both both build on key priorities to close healthcare equity gaps and to support greater access to life-saving diagnostics and therapies during the COVID-19 public health emergency and beyond. The rules provisions seek to sustain hospital readiness to respond to future public health threats 
enhance the healthcare workforce in rural and underserved communities, and revise scoring, payment, and public quality data reporting methods to lessen the adverse effects of the impacts of the pandemic to future unplanned events. CMS will also repeal the requirement that a hospital report on Medicare on the Medicare cost report the median payer-specific negotiated charge that the hospitals negotiate with all its Medicare Advantage organization payers by MSDRG for the cost reporting periods ending on or after January 1st of 2021. According to CMS, hospitals have been required to comply with this requ- had hospitals been required to comply with this requirement, it would have resulted in approximately 64,000 hours of administrative burden. CMS will also repeal, repeal the market-based MSDRG relative weight methodology that was adopted effective for fiscal year 2024 and continue using the existing cost-based MSDRG relative weight methodology to set Medicare payment rates for inpatient stays for fiscal 2024 and subsequent fiscal years. As a point of reference, the CMS price transparency final rule for 2021 reportedly placed a significant burden on hospitals to comply. This was exacerbated by the new surprise billing requirement. For more information, see the special bulletin on the IPPS final rule in today's ICD-10 monitor. You'll also see updates for all the IPPS final rules. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tim. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's August the 3rd. And this week, the CDC is recommending masks for everybody and requiring vaccines for doctors and other healthcare workers. In the meantime, you're listening to the 471st live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by. For a milestone as consequential as implementation of the inpatient prospective payment system final rule, you need more than a clear picture of what's coming. You also need trusted insights and analysis of all the changes, including new ICD-10 CMPCS codes when October 1st arrives. Only ICD-10 Monitor delivers what you need. The 2022 IPPS Summit Final Rule Update with Expert Insights and Analysis. It's a three-part webcast series. As in previous years, ICD-10 coding expert Lori Johnson will walk you through all the must-know changes in the 2022 IPPS, including new and deleted ICD-10 CMPCS codes, MSDRG modifications, new technology, add-on payments, and changes related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Plus, the live webcast series will be interactive, giving you an opportunity to get expert answers to your questions. All this comes your way August 17th, 18th, and 19th. Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Lori Johnson. Lori also has the Talk 10 Tuesday Listener Survey. And good morning, Lori. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. CMS was very busy last week with the release of final rules for skilled nursing facilities, hospice, inpatient rehabilitation facilities, and inpatient psychiatric facilities. For the skilled nursing facility, the final rule will publish on 8 4 2021 The patient-driven payment model, PDPM, was adopted in 10-1-2019. This year, effective 10-1-2021, updates to the ICD-10-CM mappings have been made. A A change has been made to consolidated billing with blood clotting factors having 
been excluded from consolidated billing. Those HCPCS codes involved are J7170, J7175, J71772, J17183, J1 J7185 to J7190, J7192 to J7195, J7198 to J7203, J7205, J7207 to J7211. Um, They've also added some items, two measures for the quality reporting program for fiscal year 23, including skilled nursing facility healthcare-associated infections requiring hospitalization and the COVID-19 vaccination coverage. For hospice, this 226-page final rule will publish on August 4th as well and be effective 10-1-21. The changes to the hospice conditions of participation are finalized as well as the hospital quality reporting program and home health quality reporting program. There is a 2% increase in payments and the fiscal year 22 patient amount increase, or I should say cap amount increase has been increased to $31,297.61. The Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and and Systems, CAHPS, hospice survey star ratings will be added to Care Compare. For inpatient rehab facility, fiscal year 22 changes become effective 10-1-21 as well. An overall increase in the fiscal year 22 payments of 1.5% is estimated. This final rule also includes a modification to the number of quarters used for public reporting of ERF quality measures due to the public health emergency. Social determinants of health have been added to the patient assessment data elements. For the inpatient psychiatric facility, the payments will increase by 2.1% compared to the fiscal year 21 rates. The COVID-19 vaccination coverage among healthcare personnel measure will be added for fiscal year 23. CMS is also seeking feedback on quality measures and data validation pilot program. If you want to see the resources um, or the links for the different final rules and fact sheets, look under the tab that's marked resources from Laurie Johnson. Now let's move to the listener survey. Today we are asking, in what non-acute care facility are you most interested or experienced in? A, for skilled nursing facility, B, hospice, C, inpatient rehabilitation facility, D, inpatient psychiatric facility, E is other, F is does not apply. And with that, Erica, I will turn it back to you. Thank you, Lori. That'll be interesting to see what our listeners uh, identify as. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Nearly everyone would agree that America's healthcare system appears to be broken, so what's the solution? Here now with an exclusive report on fixing healthcare, it's past president and former CEO of AHIMA and the recipient of AHIMA's Distinguished Member and Legacy Awards, Rose Dunn. Hello, Rose. Well, let's go to work. What do we need to do and where should we start? 
I recently read an article about um, fixing healthcare by Dave Jackiello, and it got me thinking about some of the bureaucratic, redundant, labor-intensive, and wasteful things that we do in healthcare, and how much more efficient we could be without them. So I want to explore Dave's top three ideas this week. First, there should be a mandatory national fee schedule that applies the same price for every CPT code for every payer with the only adjustment being for geographic differences. Now, in my opinion, this could reduce the need for contract management staff and contract management systems, control price bullying by dominant regional payers, probably used so that they can pay their executives another million dollars, and eliminate the need for price transparency and posting prices because it will require healthcare entities and providers to effectively use their resources to get the services done within that pricing parameter, just like DRGs, thereby promoting competition, customer service, and quality. Dave's second one has to do with provider enrollment. Every third-party payer requires the participating providers to enroll and complete an extensive credentialing application. He suggests that if the provider has enrolled in Medicare and has an NPI, that is a national provider identifier, that should be all that's needed. Now, I like this idea because it could encourage more providers to participate in Medicare. It also lets providers start serving patients immediately without waiting for their application to be approved. However, payers could use the National Practitioner Data Bank information if they desire to do some additional screening. Plus, if healthcare institutions do credentialing, then why do the payers need to do it too for providers with hospital privileges? I'd rather see the healthcare institutions become more anal with their credentialing efforts and eliminate the payer-provider enrollment activities. Payers will save money too. Maybe they'll reduce premiums, yeah, like when pigs fly. Let's have the physicians seeing patients rather than completing redundant paperwork. Now, Dave's third and final suggestion is that we eliminate the requirement for individual state licensure. This is a no-brainer. Isn't an MD an MD? Isn't a pathologist a pathologist? Does the fact that they practice in Minneapolis cause them to practice any differently than in Memphis? Eliminating the state requirements may allow some underserved border communities to have access to clinical specialists they have needed. It may also cut costs for the state, but when was the last time a state cut its costs? Well, regardless, this may mean that we need to do a side-by-side -side state comparison and establish a national standard. Let's push the administration to simplify the administrative side of medicine so that our physicians can do what they were trained to do, treat patients. I think there are many more examples of superfluous requirements that we can eliminate and get back to basics, like focusing on outcomes and patient care services. And I welcome the audience ideas on this subject. Back to you, Erica. 
Thank you, Rose. Um, I was getting uh, the cold sweats just thinking about the credentialing process. It was like a two-week, it's a two-week misadventure every time. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is past president and former CEO of AHIMA and recipient of AHIMA's Distinguished Member and Legacy Awards recipient. Chuck? Thanks, Erica, and thank you again, Rose. And be sure to read Rose Dunn's article in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. And Rose returns to Talk Talkdown Tuesday, August 17th, for Part 2 in her series, Fixing Healthcare. Coming up next is the surprising results of today's Talk Talkdown Tuesday listener survey. And then later, complications of surgery. Stand by, everybody. The clinical revenue cycle is a little-known but highly essential facet of the overall revenue picture for hospitals. It accounts for a large portion of costs associated with patient care. Getting a clear understanding of the clinical revenue cycle begins with the recognition of the need to improve its performance in relation to overall revenue. During the groundbreaking ICD-10 Monitor webcast, Dr. John Zellum explains, in easy-to-understand terms, the importance of the clinical revenue cycle. He'll empower you to realize unrecorded but rightfully earned revenue for your facility. And you will learn that specificity in the documentation translates to billing accuracy, reducing the risk of denials. The webcast is now available on demand. Register to download at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now with the results of today's Talk to Entity Listener Survey is Lori Johnson. Thank you, Chuck. And yeah, these are a little surprising for me. The results are for the skilled nursing facility, 17%, for hospice, 6%, inpatient rehab facility, 17%, inpatient psychiatric facility, 9%, other is 11%, and does not apply is at 41%. I really suspected that the inpatient psychiatric facility would be a little higher, but it seems okay to me that the skilled nursing facility inpatient rehab are about the same because we see a lot of those facilities um, in um, acute care facilities as well. Our good friend Alan Frady returns to Talk Gen Tuesday with a compelling story, Complications Arising from Surgery. It's our lead story, and here now is the aforementioned Alan Frady. Good morning, Alan. Thank you, and it's good to be back. The Coding Clinic, second quarter, 2021, rendered the surgeon's judgment as something to be further interpreted. It threw a monkey wrench into our work to ensure that routine surgical events don't inadvertently get reported as misadventures. Of course, you're going to be on your own to go read the full coding clinic entry and make up your own mind. But I tried to pull two of the main quotes out for discussion. The first quote I'm going to present, taken from within the question, says, the provider stated that a cirrhosal tear was, quote, unavoidable during extensive lysis of adhesions, not an interoperative complication. And now the excerpt from the answer. The cirrhosal tear was, quote, clinically significant as it required further excision, complicating the surgery. I'm gonna point out they seem to be equating clinical significance with an accidental cut or laceration, and the two are not the same. But what they're saying is, this particular example given is a complication, and you should report it with a complication code despite the surgeon's statement. Now that's in contrast to the official coding guidelines that state that there must be an indication in the surgical documentation 
that the condition in question is in fact a complication of which, by the way, we don't have. And remember, if there's a conflict, official coding guidelines supersedes anything the AHA says. See Coding Clinic, fourth quarter, 2018 for that reference. It's called the hierarchy of coding advice. So what's going on here? Well, the AHA's answer seems to stem from the increased severity implied by the decision to have to convert into a colectomy, which it has to be said is far more extensive than the typical bowel repair situation normally associated with this scenario. But what if the portion of the bowel was in particularly poor condition prior to the surgeon needing to do their work, and the surgeon simply discovered the problem and reacted appropriately? Then, in my thinking, the partial colectomy is not a medical misadventure. So what then? Once we know that no medical misadventure has occurred, are we still supposed to report these cases with complication codes anyway? And make no mistake, the suggested code, K9171, reads, accidental puncture and laceration, of which may or may not have actually occurred whenever a decision to have to convert into a colectomy is required. If you're looking for some kind of starting point, some way to get the conversation going in a rational way, there's a pretty good list in the companion article that goes with this. And a few of these validity tests include asking, was the additional procedure part of informed consent in any way? Did the event place the patient at additional risk of morbidity, mortality, or extend the length of stay? Were there in any interoperative surgical consultations added because of the new event or maybe a need for additional exploration, control of hemorrhage, or blood transfusions that were unplanned? And lastly, and most importantly, at any point during the surgery were the words, oops, uh-oh, or well, that's not good, uttered by the surgeon. Okay, that won't be dictated into the operative note, but that should give you a good idea as to what sort of thing we're looking for is having a high probability of being a true medical misadventure. But what if the surgeon's statement was more like, oh, the intestines look really bad, I can't do anything, it's falling apart, the slice of adhesion is not going well, I think I may have to remove this section. Because that indicates to me as being a low probability of being a true medical misadventure in the ICD-10 code, accidental cut and laceration doesn't really apply here. So in this situation, even with the added work, it's just a more complex procedure. Also, do you think this advice might start getting taken out of context and getting applied in situations where even routine repairs were performed due to cerebral lacerations? Because that's a real fear of mine. I have to wonder if further clarification might be needed from the AHA here. And all I can say is happy procedure reporting and good luck with those quality scores. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Alan Frady. And be sure to read Alan Frady's compelling story on complications of surgery. It's in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Entusi. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. I thought I would share some thoughts about the changes to the 2022 ICD-10-CM coding and reporting guidelines. Most of them are just clarifications, and some of them seem like it's hard to believe that they had to say that explicitly. Please read my article for more changes and details. We are instructed that codes should reflect the highest level of specificity documented in the medical record. I think this is addressing situations where a higher level of specificity is documented in the daily progress note or in the body of the encounter, and then the provider lapses or backslides in the discharge summary or the diagnosis section. An example might be acute tubular necrosis is diagnosed, but the discharge summary just says AKI acute kidney injury. 
If laterality is important, CMS wants it documented and coded. Permission is being given to pick up laterality for documented condition from non-provider clinicians. If there is conflicting documentation, the attending is to be queried, as is customary. Unspecified side should be used only under very limited circumstances when clarification is not possible. The guidelines are being more explicit about details from clinicians other than provider from whom you can code. In addition to BMI, ultra staging, and Glasgow Coma Score, they are opening up blood alcohol level and laterality. The section regarding use of Z codes adds that Z codes are appropriate to be captured if there is, quote, additional information relevant to a patient encounter, close quote. My impression is that those Z codes, often um, SDOH codes, may not be evaluated, treated, or increase length of stay during this mission, but they may have significant impact on the patient's baseline condition and influence discharge or outpatient management. HIV has a couple of edits. One, high-risk behavior is qualified as being, if applicable. The second is the explicit stipulation that even if medications eradicate all virus and any conditions which arose from the HIV infection, even if asymptomatic now, the patient can't revert to Z21 HIV status. The rule is once B20 HIV disease, always B20. COVID-19 revisions include reminding us that personal history is to be without residual symptoms or conditions, which is fine now that they have given us the code of U09.9 post-COVID-19 condition for sequelae or persistent symptoms or conditions after an acute infection is resolved, at least as of October 1st. In anticipation of coding patients who have had a previous infection, and have been reinfected with another case of COVID-19, perhaps a different variant, there is instruction that U09.9 may be used in conjunction with U07.1. I am not satisfied with the instruction to use alcohol use disorder on complicated with a medical condition which is alcohol-induced. I believe that it would be valuable epidemiologically and wonder if they should devise a new code accordingly. Um, I think that it is ill-advised to exchange the word women with patients for gestational diabetes. You have to be a patient to have an ICD-10-CM code applied to you. And how often is a non-female going to experience gestational diabetes? If a patient is transgender and identifies as male... Um, but still has a situation where they're able to undergo a pregnancy, the ICD-10-CM code will trigger a code edit anyway. Z71.85 and counter for immunization safety counseling is, quote, not for the provision of general information regarding risks and potential side effects during routine encounters for the administration of vaccines, closed quote. I believe it is intended to have an in-depth discussion about vaccination, likely to overcome vaccine hesitancy, and it is to be used with Z23 and counter immunization or Z28, immunization not carried out and under immunization status. Finally, a new subsection details um, SDOH and states they should be coded when documented and that the documentation may come from personnel other than healthcare providers. Patients have now been excluded as acceptable sources. I'm not really quite sure why, because it seems like that comes in the history and then the 
the uh, physician actually will have documented it. You will need to read these for yourself. I recommend that all coders, CDCs, and physician advisors review the ICD-10-CM official guidelines for coding and reporting every year when they are updated. It is always good to review the guidelines because we should be familiar with them and we use them all the time. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Erica, very, very much for an excellent uh, segment. Be sure to read her story in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor. And that's going to be a wrap for our 471st live edition of Talking Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Rose Dunn, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, Alan Freyd, who reported our lead story. And as always, thanks to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And Clark, what about Ipspalooza? Well, Ipspalooza is here. It's a 10-week period that starts when the inpatient prospective payment system final rule is released and continues through October 1st, when the regulations, including the ICD-10 codes, are effective. And the ICD-10 Monitor Editorial Board will be focusing on relevant information on the release of the new ICD-10 codes and will provide not only the news, but in-depth analysis of all IPPS-related regulations. Thanks, Clark. By the way, you can hear today's live broadcast now on demand. That means you can hear it on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us, give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thanks for being with us. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.